This is episode number 265 with Emily Nagofsky. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? If you want to listen to my episodes one day earlier than they are released anywhere else, you have to download the app Himalaya and follow my show. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. Make sure you check it out today. Emily began her career as a sex educator in 1995 when she became a peer health educator at the University of Delaware. She was trained to teach her fellow undergraduates about stress, nutrition, physical activity, and above all, sex. Soon she added sexual violence prevention and suddenly she was a sex educator. The plan was to use her degree in psychology with minors in cognitive science and physiology to become a clinical neuropsychologist working with people with traumatic brain injury and stroke. But even though she loved brain science, her work in sex education and violence prevention made her like who she was as a person in a way the academic stuff just couldn't. So that's the path she chose. She went to university and studied counselling psychology, completing clinical internships at the Kensley Institute Sexual Health Clinic. She continued on to earn a PhD in health behaviour with a concentration in human sexuality. For eight years, she worked as a lecturer and director of the wellness education at Smith College before transitioning to full-time writing and speaking. She now travels all over training professionals, teaching about the science and art of sexual well-being. Her mission is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And her second book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, is co-authored with her twin sister, Amelia, and it's for women who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by all they have to do, yet worrying that they're not doing enough. Mm, Sounds very good. And in today's episode, we chat about her story from teaching sex education to where she is today, the two keys to a healthier and happier sex life, how couples sustain a strong connection over a long period of time. She's got two hot tips for this. It's amazing. Why prioritizing and scheduling sex with your partner is key to sustaining your sex life what to do if there is no trust in your partnership and with infidelity, gender roles and how they manifest in sex, what is the human giver syndrome, how to handle differences in desire with your partner, how to turn down sex without making your significant other feel rejected, what is arousal non-concordance and why you need to know, how to provide sex education for your children, plus 
so much more. And for everything that Emily and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 265. And before we dive into today's juicy conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it is a five-star review from Amy Beth, and it's titled All the Good Vibes. And Amy says, every time I listen to a new interview with Melissa, my heart is yelling, yes, so spot on. I love the good, positive, nourishing, genuine vibes that are always shared. There is a genuine concern for everyone to lift their own vibes and live more on their alignment. Definitely worth listening. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm super grateful for your kind five-star review and so glad that it deeply resonates with you. And don't forget that if you want to be the review of the week for next week, all you have to do is head on over to iTunes and leave me that five-star review right now. I would be so grateful if you could do that. And now, without further ado, let's get this party started. Let's bring on the incredible Emily Nagoski. Emily, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? A cup of coffee with heavy cream. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I have for breakfast every morning. The thing I do is uh, I make the coffee for the morning because I get up first. Right. So you're on coffee duty. Yeah. And we're coffee snobs. Like we buy like the locally roasted single origin, blah, blah. We do that. We grind (laughs) our beans on like within minutes of brewing the coffee. I I worked my way through college as a barista. So I'm a coffee nerd. Yeah, right, right. Well, I would love to hear about your story and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do. Like, how did this all unfold for you? It unfolded in tiny little steps at a time without me having any idea what I was doing. The first thing that happened is when I got to college as an undergraduate, I was a big nerd, surprise. Um, So I knew I was going to go to grad school for something. I had no idea what, but I thought, oh, well, I need volunteer work on my resume to make me look like a good candidate for grad school, I was thinking as a first-year student. Um, And so a guy on my floor suggested, hey, come be a peer health educator with me. Uh, go into residence halls and talk about like all kinds of health topics. And I was like, I like health. Sure. Uh, So I applied and I got accepted and I got trained to go into residence halls and talk about contraception, condoms and consent, basically. Uh, So I started my work as an undergrad sex educator, my very first semester in college. And a couple of things happened at that point. First of all, I noticed I was pretty much the only person who, when our trainers said the words of vagina and penis and clitoris, I was the only one who didn't go <laughs> like like freaking out with like nervous giddiness. And I thought, well, that might be something to think about. Uh, and then the other thing that happened is that over the years of my undergrad, I got a degree in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy, uh, which I genuinely do use. And I love the brain stuff. I had this plan to be a clinical neuropsychologist. I was going to work with people with traumatic brain injury and stroke. 
But as much as I love the academic work and the intellectual stuff, it just, the work I was doing as a sex educator and then as a sexual violence prevention educator and then as a sexual assault crisis responder, that work made me like who I am as a person. In a way, the the work I was doing as a sex educator, sexual violence prevention educator, and then as a sexual violence crisis responder made me like who I am as a person in a way that the intellectual academic stuff just never could. So that's the path I chose. I got um, I went to Indiana University to get a master's degree in counseling psychology. I trained as a sex therapist. And about halfway through that program, I realized I do not have the special magical something that it takes to like sit in a room with people who are going through something and just go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how did that feel for you? I just like I just don't have the thing. I'm an educator by temperament. And so I was like, okay, so I have this clinical background, but I'm not going to be a therapist. So let me keep going to school. So I got a PhD basically in public health and became a sex educator. I got a job at Smith College, which is a small liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts, the alma mater of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and my favorite, Julia Child which was an amazing job. It might be the most important job I'll ever have in my life. And there I taught a class called Women's Sexuality. So if you imagine you've got 187 students and they're all Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and Julia Child, the famous chef, like these are not ordinary human beings. So they pushed me really hard to like get as deep into the science as I wanted to go. And I pushed them right back. And I was like, you want the science? You got it. So after this really demanding semester, the last question on my final exam was out of all this science, just tell me one important thing you learned. And out of my 187 students, I thought they were going to say like arousal non concordance or attachment theory or something like that. And instead, more than half of my students just wrote something like, I learned I'm normal. Just because I'm different from other women doesn't mean I'm broken. I can trust my body because my body is normal. And I sat in my office grading these final exams with tears in my eyes, which is not what it's usually like to grade final exams. I didn't know at the time what it was about feeling normal that was so urgently necessary for my students, but something in my class had granted them access to it, and I wanted to do it again, and I wanted to do it at a bigger scale, and that's the day I decided to write Come As You Are. A mere four and a half years later, it was published as a book, and uh, there we go. Mm, Awesome. Well, I discovered you through your incredible TED Talks. There's three that I was aware of. I don't know if you've done any more. No, there's three. Yes. Oh, awesome. Okay. And I absolutely love them. But I want to know, what are these keys that you talk about to a healthier and happier sex life? And by the way, I think the work that you're doing is so incredible. And you are talking about and shining light on this seemingly taboo topic that Everybody does, you know, and we need to talk about it. Like you said, like there's so many people that feel like they're not normal because we don't talk about it. So I love that you are shining light on this, but I would love to hear, you know, you talk about these keys to healthier and happier sex lives. So what are they? The most basic level, the two keys to your best sex life, the keys are confidence and joy. 
I take it as, you know, if I have a mission in life, it is to, if there's a reason I'm here on earth, it's to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. I've been saying that for a long time. And then one day a student raised her hand and said, Emily, could you please define your terms? What is it that you mean by confidence and joy? And I, I was like, I will have to get back to you on that. So I spent a week thinking about it. What is it I'm actually saying when I say confidence and joy? And here's what I worked out. Confidence is knowing what is true about your body, about the world, about your sexuality, even when it's not what you were taught was supposed to be true, even when it's not what you wish were true. Confidence is knowing what is true about you in the world. And joy is the hard part. Joy is loving what's true about you, even when it's not what you were taught to expect to be true, even when it's not what you wish were true. Loving what's true about your body, your sexuality, and your place in the world, being able to find joy in whatever it is that is you, is the fundamental Am I going to say guarantee of a spectacular sex life? I don't know if I'm going to say guarantee, but it's uh, it's pretty difficult not to have a great sex life if you really love and value your body the way it is. Mm, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And you talk a lot about, okay, so say we've got the joy and the confidence down pat. How do we... <laughs> <laughs> P.S. That will never happen. Like it's a, it's, it's a long-term process. Totally. Particularly because, oh, as you, like, if you're lucky enough to grow old every single day, your body's going to change and be different. And at a certain point, you're going to like be in your body and be like, this is really different from how it was five years ago or 10 years ago. I worked really hard to love that. And now I've got to start all over and love this. Yes. And then you add, you know, birthing children into that and that whole change that comes with your body when you go through that transition. So yes, it is something that, you know, I'm personally... It's a practice. It's like meditation. Yeah. Committed to the confidence and the joy. and, And yes, you're right. It's a practice. So for people who are in long-term relationships, how do we sustain that strong sexual connection over that long term? You know, you talk about these two important mm-hmm. ways that we can do that. Yes. When you look at the research on couples who do sustain a strong sexual connection, who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives, what they tell us is the thing that helps them is not the things we usually see in movies. So it's not about having like a spontaneous craving for sex of like really desiring sex all the time. That is not what they say their sex lives are like. They are not even people who have sex very often. Hardly any of us are having sex very often. We have a lot of other things we need to get done. And so there's only a limited amount of time we can invest in sex. And they're not couples who are necessarily having what we might think of as like wild adventurous sex. They instead are couples who have two things in common. First, they have a strong foundation of trust in their relationship. They're really good friends. Sue Johnson, the relationship researcher and therapist, breaks down trust as basically the answer to the question, are you there for me? And R is an acronym for emotionally accessible, emotionally responsive, 
and emotionally engaged. When you feel like your partner is there for you, you come to them with a hurt feeling and they turn toward that difficult feeling with kindness and compassion. You say that you have a particular need and they step up. And in sexuality, the trust is really important because, I mean, geez, you're going to be potentially taking off some clothes and letting them see parts of your body almost no one else will see. You're letting them touch parts of your body almost no one else will see. You might be putting parts of your body inside part of theirs or letting them put a part of their body inside yours. You got to trust somebody. You got to really know that person is going to be emotionally accessible, responsive, and engaged with you. If you take off your clothes and their response is anything short of yay and wow and thank you, then they're not really fully there for you. And if that trust isn't there, then how can you move forward, really? The more you trust your partner to be there for you and to be as confident and joyful in your body as you are, or even more so, that's a key to having a great sex life. So trust is really essential. And the other component is, man, when you think about it, it's so obvious. They prioritize sex. They decide that it matters for their relationship that they stop all the other things that they could be doing. Like you were saying, like people have jobs, people have kids, people have other family members to spend time with. They have other friends they want to hang out with. Maybe, God forbid, they just want to watch some TV and go to bed, right? We have a lot of other things that we could be doing, but the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection decide that it matters for their relationship enough that they're going to put aside all that other stuff and protect a cordoned off space just so that they can do this, frankly, pretty silly thing it is we humans do of rubbing our skins against each other and putting our mouths on each other's bodies and rubbing ourselves around and rolling around. And it's that matters so much for their relationship that they're willing to stop everything else and just do that. There are couples for whom it's not a priority. And probably most couples go through at least a phase in their relationship when sex drops off the radar because they've got so many other intense, urgent priorities to get done that there just isn't space for sex. That is normal. It's not something to panic about. It's just something to notice and check in about like, so the sex is like went away. What's up with that? And let's make sure we're staying communicative about the fact that that happened. So they're the couples who have really strong friendship and trust in their relationship, and they prioritize sex. They decide that it matters. So what this looks like in practice is that they set up times to have sex. They know, you know, Saturday at three o'clock, you, me, in the red underwear. This is not just a like a, a date night, just get in bed and do it sort of thing, because it's really easy to mishear what I'm saying as like, just like Saturday at three o'clock, you, me, in the red underwear, you get in the bed. So for example, I had a couple of friends. They were married with two kids, little kids, under the age of five, both of the kids. And we were talking about this stuff. And I said the thing, Saturday at three o'clock, you mean the red underwear. You know, you put your body in the bed, I said, and you let your skin touch your partner's skin and your body will wake up and go, oh, right. I like this person. I really enjoy this experience. Uh, and one of the partners at the table literally cringed away from the table and went, ugh. And I was like, okay, <laughs> so there's your problem. Just do it is good advice for couples who, when they get there, they really have a great time. 
when they show up and put their bodies in the bed. If you are struggling in any, if you dread sex, if you cannot tolerate having your partner touch you because you're worried about like the pressure and expectation, you're the lower desire partner. And anytime your partner hugs you, you get like worried that they're going to start expecting more. Just do it. Sex advice is not for you. In that case, what you need to do is look at what is between the two of you. I use this very silly metaphor (laughs) in the book of sleepy hedgehogs that difficult feelings accumulate between partners and you treat each difficult feeling as this like sleepy hedgehog. Like you want to keep it sleepy. You want to stay really calm so that it doesn't get all spiky and quilled and dangerous. You'd be really calm about it. You notice what the feelings are because you think about all the situations where your partner has wanted sex and you didn't want sex and they tried to initiate and you said no and they felt rejected and also a little angry, but also like pushy and obnoxious and they're worried, but you're, you You also feel pushed, but also you feel bad because you want to say yes, but you just feel so uncomfortable that you can't get to it. Like everybody feels terrible in this situation. So you notice how terrible you feel and you go to your partner with this sleepy hedgehog and say, I feel so terrible and trapped in this. And uh, you have to like work with your partner to deal with all of the sleepy hedgehogs that have evolved in your relationship. So just do it is not the advice that I am giving. The couples who sustain a strong sexual connection inevitably go through the phases when they've built up a lot of difficult feelings between the two of them. What matters is that they know how to deal with all the difficult feelings and find their way back to each other, which is not a sexual skill. That's a relationship skill. It's not a sexual problem. It's a relationship problem. When they can find their way back to each other, the sex will come back automatically as long as they're happy to allow their sexuality to be what it is. So that's what it's not. The couples who sustain a great sexual connection over the long term, what it looks like in real life is they know the time and place. They do preparation work to set up just like you would like when you're first dating the hot and heavy fallen in love with your partner. Like you spend all day or all week planning for that event. Like you choose a special place that you're going to go to dinner. You think a lot about like what underwear you're going to wear and you imagine the sorts of things that you're going to be doing with each other. There's a lot of planning and preparation and excitement because you're pretty sure that whenever you get to the sexy part, it's going to be great. And that's really what matters. They are having sex that they really enjoy. The way Peggy Kleinplatz, the researcher who studies optimal sexual experiences, puts it is that couples can ask themselves, what kind of sex is worth wanting? And then you create. So what was it? What would it take to make that sex happen in our lives together? Does that make sense? Mm, Totally. And I talk a lot about practicing crystal clear communication. I call it CCC. And this is where we really do need to practice that crystal clear communication and have these conversations with our partner, you know, to discuss these sleepy hedgehogs. But for someone listening who is thinking, yeah, but I don't trust my partner. Like, where to from there? Like, I don't feel safe with them. Yeah. That's a really fundamental issue. It's not a sexual problem. It is a relationship difficulty. And the solution for it does not lie in any kind of sexual contact you can have. The the sex has to emerge in response to the trust. So if you don't trust your partner to be there for you, you definitely can't trust them to be there for you for sex. Why would you? 
Yeah, and it's like once I feel like, you know, when you trust somebody, your heart opens as do all of your other chakras. Right. Yes, indeed. Yes. So that trust is really, it's so imperative for not only a relationship, but for a healthy sex life. And I find, you know, trust is built on vulnerability. The more open and honest you are with each other, that trust gets built and deepened and, you know, then everything gets better. Yeah. And the really wonderful thing is that the research is very clear that uh, betrayed trust can be repaired when people are willing to do the work and able to stay connected and able to turn toward the difficult feelings and practice rebuilding trust, even when the trust has been damaged, even by like a really intense betrayal like cheating. Mm, That's a really, really good point. Thank you for sharing that because I know people in my life who have experienced that and they have come to me and like, you know, do I stay? Do I go? Type of thing. And, you know, some of them are like, this, I want to stay. I want to work through this, but I don't know if you can fully trust that person ever again. And I've always said, yes, that trust can be rebuilt, but it has to take two willing participants to work on it. You know, not just one person who's willing to work on it and do the therapy. It's going to take two people who are willing to you know, seek advice or support from someone else to move through it. The piece that I wanted to say was that no one is required to forgive someone who betrays their trust. It is a generous choice that we can make when we believe that it is worth it. And I generally say that working on repairing a betrayed trust is a good decision when the person has genuine remorse for the ways that they betrayed you and when they are capable of change. Mm, Absolutely. And only with those two characteristics, both in place. If they're remorseful, but they're like, I can't do anything about it, then consider that a permanent change in your relationship. And you might keep the relationship, but it's a different relationship now. Mm, Something different. It's evolved. And relationships are always growing and evolving. And so for someone who's listening, who thinks, okay, I, I don't feel safe in my partnership, it's a matter of sitting down, practicing crystal clear communication with your partner and expressing how you feel. And then maybe, you know, suggesting to go and speak to someone together and work on this together. Yeah, absolutely. With that open heartedness of really profound, like the vulnerability you were talking about. Yes. And so what about for someone who, you know, you spoke about prioritizing it, And that's something that's really important in my partnership. And what if someone listening is like, well, I want to prioritize it, but my partner's not really interested. So where to from there? Oh, you want to talk about a crystal clear conversation you can have with someone. I really recommend that partners with higher desire and partners with lower desire think through the answer to the question, what is it that I want when I want sex? If you're going to prioritize sex, what is it that sex brings to your relationship? It's not just orgasm. You could have an orgasm by yourself. You do not need the other person to be there for that. So what is it that sex contributes to your relationship? And the two of you may have really similar answers or really different answers. And if there have been problems in your sexuality, then you that's an opportunity to think about like, what are the problems that sex brings into your relationship? And when people can be clear and honest with themselves first about, like, they can get past 
I'm thinking here of men in particular because they're trapped in this really sick set of cultural messages. First of all, that they're only allowed to express and receive love through sexual touch. To simply be affectionate and loving is unmasculine, unmanly, and they can't get access to love unless they can get access to sex. And if their partner is just not up for sex for whatever reason, it feels like their partner is rejecting their whole manhood, their entire identity as a masculine person. And the second, or it feels like they're rejecting the love part. It's like you're depriving me not just of the pleasure of sex, but of any sort of connection and affection and love. It's like you don't, that's just, this is why it feels like you don't love me when you say no to sex. It's because we teach people it's the only way that they can give and receive love. And the other really destructive message is that we tell men that their value can be measured by their ability to get their penises into the vaginas. Wow. And like they're as a person, their worth can be measured by their ability to get someone to say yes to sex. And when you're in a long-term relationship with someone and they're not giving you access to the vagina, what they're doing is denying you access to your value on earth as a man. And that's a really dangerous trap. So if a guy is thinking about like, what is it that I want when I want sex? Probably, if they get deep and honest, what they're going to hear from their own internal world is they're, they want a way to express and to receive affection and love and unconditional positive regard. They want to feel a deep connection with their own personal identity, a sense of self-worth. And those are things that they can get through other venues besides sex. And when you're not making sex responsible for meeting those really basic human needs, it frees sex up to be the pleasurable, joyful experience that it can be instead of making it so like deadly serious. And women, <laughs> we get uh, an equally contradictory set of messages. On the one hand, my sister and I, I have an identical twin sister actually, and she Grew, we grew up in the same household, but by the time we got to be teenagers, her model of what a woman is supposed to be as a sexual creature was nothing. Like she should have no sexual desire. Those were like base animal urges, and a real woman was in control of those. She never wanted sex. She never liked sex. She only did it because her partner wanted it. It was entirely about like just like lie back and think of England. Whereas I, genetically identical, raised in the same household. Instead, by the time I was 15, my internal model of what sex was like was sort of like the Cosmo glamour version of it, where like men really love it when women are enthusiastic and women like sex and women make noise and women touch their own breasts. So what I learned was to perform sexual pleasure for men's sexual pleasure. In neither case was sexual pleasure about, you know, our own pleasure. <laughs> always it was about what we were going to give to men, but we had opposite scripts of the ways that we were supposed to give sex to men. In the second book, Burnout, which I wrote with Amelia, we invented this phrase, human giver syndrome. It comes from uh, this work by the Australian moral philosopher, Kate Mann. She wrote a book called Down Girl, which I 
recommend so highly. It's pretty dark, but nice and short. So if you've got the emotional wherewithal, I really recommend it. So human giver syndrome is the idea that there are two kinds of humans in the world. There's the human beings who have a moral obligation to be and express their full humanity and should be as competitive, acquisitive, and entitled as it takes in order to be their full humanity. And uh, then on the other hand, we've got the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their full humanity to the human beings, their time, attention, their patience, their kindness, their love, their bodies, their hopes and dreams, even their lives sacrificed on the altar of someone else's comfort and convenience. And just like sort of at a global cultural scale, which one are women? Women are the givers. And uh, of course, it is not as simple. Black and white men are human beings. Women are human givers. I am married to a cis dude who is a human giver. And the structure of our relationship is really different than it would be if he were competitive, entitled, and acquisitive. Because part of my job in our relationship is to help monitor his energy because he would just like give and give and give and do everything he can to support me until he had nothing left. And so like part of my responsibility is to help him monitor his own energy level to make sure he's really like working on his stuff and staying connected with what he loves to do. So I am not saying that all men are this and all women are that. Just that at the cultural level, the scripts we have received are that women are supposed to give their bodies to men as a sacrifice so that men can be the fully developed human beings that they are supposed to be. This message lives really deeply in our body. And it's where we get things like in Peggy Orenstein's book, uh, Girls and Sex. There's a story of a teenage girl who there's a boy over at her house. She wants the boy to leave. She doesn't want to escalate the situation or put herself in danger. So she gives him a blowjob so that he will get out of her house. Sorry, that got darker than I intended it to. And then what happens after she does that? Oh, he left. Oh, he left. That's the thing. Yeah. The the good news about this is that she de-escalated the situation. She kept herself safe from having anything worse happen. It was pretty clever and smart. But I mean, don't we all want to live in a world where she just could just say, hey, man, I'm ready for you to go. And he'd be like, cool. See you tomorrow. Yes. Ideally, that is the ideal situation. So, okay. Is there a ideal amount of time per week that we could be prioritizing lovemaking for? Like, I mean, in all your research, like, have you come across anything that says, because I know some couples that have not made love in months and months and months and months and even years. Not since their youngest child was born. Exactly. So. Okay. I don't want to say what is the ideal amount of times, but you know what I mean. Imagine if I could just give you a magic number and be like, look, if you have sex X number of times a week, or if you have it for X amount of time total accumulated over the week, then you will have a happy, joyful sexual life. Wouldn't it be amazing if I could just give a flat answer like that? Totally. But of course, the answer has to be, it depends and it varies from couple to couple. When you do read the research about like how frequently couples have sex or anything else like that, okay, so that can give you a description of what a population of people said about their sex lives. But does what those people say about their sex lives have anything to do with you, your body, your relationship, your sexuality? 
And yet, if I were to like say a number about like how many times people report having sex, it would be literally impossible for a person to hear that number and not compare their frequency of sex or whatever, and then judge themselves as being either right or wrong, good or bad. If I say that number, then if a couple it, it has differential desire, which is the most frequent sexual difficulty that couples take into sex therapy, where one partner wants sex more than the other. How common is that? I do not know. That's a really important question. Uh, and I, at a population level, I don't know the number. I haven't seen a study that just is like, here's how common it is. I think it's virtually universal for at least phases in a relationship. There's always going to be times when somebody is really stressed out or somebody is really exhausted or there genuinely is not time. And that's just like a normal change. So the question is less how many couples experience different levels of desire sometimes in their relationship as how many are experiencing difference in desire and it is causing significant distress in the relationship. And I do not know how frequent it is, how common it is. Apart from the fact that like literally everyone I know has experienced it. If they've been in a relationship long enough, they've come, they've had a, a some phase of differential desire. But if I say a number of how frequently couples have sex and you're in that kind of relationship and the higher desire partner can be like, look, see, this is what's normal. This is what normal people do. And they can use it as a weapon against the lower desire partner. Or if the, the they're already like at or above that threshold, the lower desire partner can be like, look, this is what's normal. You're the one who's sick. You're the one who's wrong. You want too much sex. So uh, I don't, I do not give a number. I, I ask that people come to a decision about what sex is right for them, not by looking out to any numbers, but by turning their attention inward to what their own body and heart says. I think that's really important. Everybody is different. And I know many couples who have different, you know, one person wants it more than the other and their relationships are thriving and they've been together for many, many years. So it doesn't mean that just because someone in the relationship wants it or desires it more than the other, that your relationship is faulty. Oh, heck no. No, it just comes back to like that crystal clear communication that we were talking about before and being aware of it. I don't think it's one of the reasons you should throw a relationship away. And when couples can be really clear with each other about what it is that they want when they want sex, uh, so that they're also really clear about what's being turned down when a person turns down sex, like I'm just turning down genital contact and arousal right now. I love the heck out of you. And like, I totally want to pay attention to you and hug you. And I'm touched out from the children today. And so can we just lie here and talk like grownups? That's not turning down the person. It's not turning down the love. It's just like my body is not where it could be to make sex happen right now. Mm. Okay, cool. And even just saying that the other person will then not feel like you've rejected them. It's just like physically like, yeah, I am spent and I just want to curl up in bed and fall asleep. I'm so exhausted. So I feel like, yeah, that crystal clear communication can really solve a lot of these issues. And with sexual communication, it's actually not the same as the skills we use to talk about other things because we are so 
tender. We're so fragile around these topics. We are all terrified that we are doing it wrong and that we are failing our partner. So even the slightest sense of criticism can just feel so dangerous, so hurtful. Uh, So we have to be incredibly tender with each other when we're talking about sex. For a simple thing, like I need my partner to provide a different tongue situation when they're giving me oral sex. You don't say, hey, move your tongue this other way. That'd be great. What you say is, I love what you are doing. Oh God, I love that so much. You know what I really love? Oh, could you try this? You frame it as you are already a superhero. Here's how to be an extra second cape superhero. And when it's about solving a problem like lower desire or lack of orgasm, you frame it in terms of there are such great things about our connection and the sex means so much to me. I love you so much that I want to do, like, let's talk about what we can do to make this connection work better. I am here to listen. Oh, and that's the other thing about it is a litany of complaints is maybe the worst way. Like you can be crystal clear complainer, (laughs) and that's a really good way to shut down communication about sexuality because the person just feels attacked on a really deep sort of humiliating level not just like this person is complaining and super negative, but like humiliating, shameful stuff because of what we're taught about sexuality. So being as positive and clear and gentle and loving with each other as possible whenever we're talking to our partner about sex. Mm, Such a beautiful reminder and so important. Now, I want you to talk to us about unwanted arousal. Oh, yeah. Yes, please. You have a special name, you call it. So the technical term for it is arousal non-concordance, which sounds real fancy and intimidating, but non-concordance just means that there is a mismatch between what's happening in your physiology and what's happening in your subjective experience of pleasure and desire. And it happens in every emotional and motivational system that we have, including sex. My favorite non-sex example is actually a study of music. You know the feeling of uh, goosebumps or you get chills, chills run down your spine? The physiological marker for that is called piloerection. It's where your hair stands on end. So they did a study where they found out that there are certain songs that predictably produce chills. For example, My Heart Will Go On or uh, Purple Rain, and they played this music to research subjects, and they literally just had a camera watching the hair on a person's arm, and they watched whether or not their hair stood an end, and then they asked them the question, hey, did you get chills when you were listening to it? And it turns out there is not a significant relationship between whether a person says they got chills from the music and whether their hair stood on end. This is an example of arousal non-concordance, a mismatch between a person's subjective experience and their physiological response. But if you are Celine Dion, which matters to you? Do you want people to walk out of the theater going, eh, it was fine, but their hair stood on end? Or do you want them to walk out of the theater going, oh, I got chills. It was amazing. And who cares what their hair was doing, right? Like, obviously, it's the person's subjective experience that matters. And we're really good at understanding that it's the subjective experience that matters until we learn that this also applies to sex. So instead of it being about pilo erection, 
It's just about erection, erection. It's about blood flow to the genitals. It turns out there is not necessarily a significant correlation between what a person's blood flow is doing and how a person subjectively feels. And we live in a world where somehow people who are perfectly capable of understanding that if you feel like you got chills, you got chills, regardless of what your hair did, they sort of can't wrap their heads around the idea that like, it doesn't matter if a person's vagina is wet. It doesn't matter if their penis is erect. If they're like, meh, this isn't working for me. When a person says it's not working for them, no matter what their genital blood flow is doing, you believe the person. The subjective experience is definitely right. I would never like bite into a apple and find out it's got a worm in it, but my mouth still waters. And people would be like, well, you just don't admit how much you like that wormy apple, Emily, because my physiological response happened. If my doctor taps my patellar tendon and my knee kicks out, nobody is like, well, Emily, I mean, secretly, deep down though, you wanted to kick your doctor, right? Maybe I did want to kick my doctor, but the way you would know that is not by what my reflexes are, but by what I tell you, right? We know that your subjective experience is the true measure of what you want and like. And the same is true about sexuality. And I cannot tell you how many times I have talked about arousal non-concordance and gotten emails and letters and people coming up to me after to tell me stories about how they were in a sexual situation and their genitals responded and they were not into it. And they said, no. And they said, you know, I'm not interested. And their partner said, oh, but you're so wet. No, but you're hard. I know you want it. I know you like it. Um, and the arousal goes up to and includes orgasm. Unwanted arousal goes all the way to unwanted orgasm just because a person's body is responding sexually. Like there's a sex-related stimulus happening. That does not mean that you want or like it. Wow. This is amazing. It's so amazing because I have never heard anyone talk about it like this because I know so many people who have said that same thing. Oh, well, and, and then thought that something was wrong with them yes. because, okay, they were hard or wet, but in my body, you're like, hang on a minute, like, this doesn't feel right and my body doesn't want it, but down there is saying I do and I'm confused. Yes. What's wrong with me? Am I broken? What's going on? Am I normal? Like, then that inner dialogue happens. But what you have just shared with us is that they are two separate things and what is ultimately the key driver, the most important, is what's going on in your heart, right. not what your genitals telling you. Exactly. Yeah, because your genitals can't tell you what you want. They just say, hey, some sex-related stimulation is happening, and it your genitals respond whether it's good or bad. It doesn't know anything else about the rest of the context. It just knows, like, sexual stimulation is happening. There are comedian singers on YouTube who I'm going to forget what their names are, but they have a song called uh, Go-Kart Racing Accidentally Masturbating, where they're talking about how the seatbelt in the go-kart they're driving is rubbing against their clitoris, and they're accidentally masturbating <laughs> in the go-kart. Like, they're not, it's not that they're turned on by the driving of the go-kart, it's that there's direct pressure against their clitoris, and so like arousal is happening and they're like, this is awkward. This is not what I intend. And you know, like every teenage boy will recognize the story of, you know, you're sitting on a bus and the vibration causes 
an erection or heck the wind blows the wrong way when you're a 13 year old boy and your body responds with an erection because you're so flooded with testosterone that your body's like everything is sex related everything everything is sex related and gradually as your hormone levels stabilize and your body understands how to deal with this stuff it's like all right no not everything is sex related there's some things that are not yeah such an important point and i can see how important this is to talk to our children about oh yeah uh, and you know it i feel sort of angry when i hear people say i've never heard of this before cuz this research has existed since the early 80s and even in the early 80s researchers were warning within their research papers let's make sure we're not mistaking res- genital response for pleasure or desire and it took 18 is when i did my ted talk 40 years it has taken for this idea to even begin penetrating into the mainstream. And the reason these ideas are so slow to make their way into the mainstream is because we don't talk about it, because just bringing up the whole subject makes people go, ah! even just get, like I had to fight Ted pretty hard to let me give this talk because it was so, like I used the word clitoris. I talked about blood flow to the genitals and the people at Ted were like, I don't know if this is right for us. And I was like, well, this is the talk I'm going to give. So let's, let's work it. Let's make it happen. And they were really supportive and helped me write my talk in a way that wasn't going to freak people out too much. But like, it's, difficult to talk about. And it takes a really deliberate effort to make sure you have the conversation with people in your life. And we need to be having it in... Okay. So part of the research I had to read for writing Come As You Are is I read Fifty Shades of Grey. And I am a reader of romance novels, right? Like I do a lot of work around sexual violence. I require happily ever afters in my life. And how feminist, right? For there to be a whole genre of literature that's written mostly by women, mostly for women, mostly about women's sexual and relationship satisfaction. That's so great. So I had an open mind when I opened Fifty Shades of Grey. And I'm not going to disparage it. It has brought a lot of people a lot of pleasure. It opened up a conversation around women's sexual pleasure in the mainstream that would not have happened without something so big. And, And it wasn't for me, but I didn't actually literally throw it against the wall (laughs) until I got to the first spanking scene. And so as, as a reader of romance, I know what's supposed to happen in the first spanking scene. The heroine is supposed to go, I know I'm not supposed to like this, but I like it so much. That is not what happens in Fifty Shades of Grey. In the first spanking scene, uh, Anastasia consents to it, but she does not want it. And she does not like it. There was not one word about pleasure. I looked really carefully and there's not one word. In fact, it hurts like crazy. She scrunches up her face against the pain. She struggles to get away. And at the end of the spanking, Christian Gray, our hero slash spanker, puts his fingers in her vagina and says, feel this, Anastasia. See how much your body likes this? You're soaking just for me. And the worst part about this story, so what does Christian Gray get wrong there, right? Like, Just because her vagina responded with blood flow and wetness does not mean she wanted or liked it. What it means is, is it sex-related for your romantic and sexual partner to touch your butt? Absolutely it is. Does that indicate that you want or liked what happened? No, it does not. 
But the worst part is that even though Anastasia later goes on to describe herself as feeling debased, abused, and degraded by the spanking experience, she believes him. Because her body responded, she decides he must be right and she must be wrong and she can't trust her own internal experience, which was being crystal clear with her about how she felt about that experience. 50 million copies that book has sold. So until 50 million people hear about arousal non-concordance, like I will not have undone the damage of that one scene. Far out. In reinforcing this really dangerous myth. How would you approach talking about this to teenage children? Because I know a lot of my listeners would have kids or they want to have kids or they've got, you know, babies and, you know, one day they're going to have to have these conversations. So how do we open up this dialogue with them? Like, I mean, you know, give us some examples or what you would suggest. Yeah, actually, the most important thing, it's not so much about the precise words you say. The main thing is being able to modulate your body's own reaction to these ideas and saying these words and having the conversation. I will give you a, a negative example and then a positive example. The negative example is my own family. My mom, who's great. The first time I ever asked her, we were in the car driving home from the library. I must have seen the word vagina in a book at the library because we're sitting in the car and I say, hey, mom, what's a vagina? And I don't remember what she said, but I remember the huge flash of just embarrassment and horror. And whatever this vagina thing was, it was not something I should ever bring up ever again, ever. So the more you can work on making sure your emotional response to ideas around sexuality is neutral. And it, if I had asked, hey, mom, what's, what's an elbow? What does axillary mean? Oh, it just means armpit. Like if your emotional response can be the same to a question like, what's the technical word for an armpit? Or what's a philtrum? Oh, it's that divot between uh, the, the top part of your lip and your nose. If your emotional reaction to that is the same as your emotional reaction to sex-related words and ideas, you're going to be doing just fine. The second part of it is you have to be willing to be the parent who receives the, ugh, mom, gross. Like they, they don't want to hear it from you. <laughs> They're not going to, you didn't want to hear it from your parents, but it is your job to show up and be the one who says, hey, listen, condoms, let's talk about it. Hey, your genitals are a normal part of your body. So my positive counterexample comes from a therapist who participated in a training of mine. This was a few years ago. And she's like, I just have to tell you this story about my daughter from when she was two. She was on uh, a bouncy ball. Does Australia have bouncy balls, little like handle balls and you like bounce up and down on them? Yes. So two-year-old girl on a bouncy ball and the little girl goes, hey, mommy, this feels really good. <laughs> and the mom says, yes, honey, that's your clitoris. And the little girl says, my clitoris is my favorite. That story brings me so much joy and gives me so much hope for the future. Because we know at least this one human is being raised to know that her body belongs to her, all of it. Her body is hers to decide 
what to do with and how to feel about it and whether or not she and spends time with those sensations. And I even telling that story, I know some people are going to respond with like, well, that's nice, but ah, what if, what if, who even knows what if? Like it just scares us because we grew up with such sex negative family stories and cultural narratives that just the idea of a little girl knowing the word clitoris and enjoying the sensations of her clitoris rubbing against a ball uh, makes us feel a little panicky. So the more an adult can uproot that old sex negative crap from their response to stories like this, the more they'll be able to talk about it with their kids and then their teenagers in a way that does not reinforce the shame that stops us from being able to move these ideas forward into the future. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like if you can't say vaginal lubrication, you can't talk about arousal non concordance. Totally. So say it with me vaginal lubrication. You can do it. <laughs> it's seriously like they're just words. Like you said, like it's just words, like elbow, you know, they're just words. And the more that we kind of like go, oh, and we make it little funny names and like, you know, we are sending a signal to them and that is getting encoded within them. So it's really important. Our language and the way that we respond is really important. And people don't often remember what you say, but they remember how they felt when you said it or what you said. Exactly. You know, your children won't remember exactly what you said when you gave them this talk, but they'll remember your awkwardness or how you squirmed or whatever it is. How you were unable to make eye contact with them, how you were clearly like all tense through your body. Like my mother flushed red and she's a redhead, so she flushed red. Yes, it's so important. Now, I'd love for you to pretend that if you had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world, besides your incredible books, which I think should be in the curriculum, what is one book that you would choose? You know, I would go younger than high school because by then there's already, by 18, half of them are having sex already. So I want every like young kid elementary school to have a book, What Makes a Baby, which is this really beautiful, entirely gender-free, inclusive story of like how like sperm meets an egg and it doesn't have to specify where the sperm meets the egg and the uh, it develops in a uterus and it's not necessarily like your parents who are raising you's uterus, but there's a uterus and then a baby comes out. And the end question is, who waited for you? So it honors like all the different ways that people can become parents. It normalizes all the different ways that babies come into families. And it's really beautiful and totally age appropriate for everybody. And it helps to begin breaking down the barriers that we have around talking about these body parts and especially the gendered narratives with it. And then in junior high, I don't know what the Australian equivalent is, but it's like 10 through 14, that age range, tweens. And young teens, there's a brand new book called Wait, What? That is written by Heather Corona and illustrated by Isabella Rotman. They're both Chicago-based sex educators and artists. And it features a character called Weird Platypus, who's weird. And what he says is it's okay to be weird. And it talks about like the emotional 
experiences that young people have as they begin connecting with their erotic selves and feeling the contradiction between what their internal experience is saying to them and what all the cultural messages are. And how do I trust my own body? How do I know what I want or like when my culture is offering me a script of what I'm supposed to want or like, but that doesn't feel like me? And it's just beautifully illustrated and wonderfully inclusive so that every kid who reads it is going to see themselves in it. And when we have begun those conversations at an earlier stage, then by the time they get to high school, they're going to be ready for Come As You Are. Yes. And we'll link to both of those books as well as your books in the show notes so everyone can go and grab those. So thank you for that. Now, I'd love to hear about your morning routine and how you prime yourself for the day. I love hearing about how people kind of set themselves up for the day. So can you share that with us? Sure. I'm a natural lark. So I spontaneously wake up between five and six in the morning, every morning, no matter when I went to bed. So I have to make sure I go to bed early enough. And I'm the first one awake in my household. It's me, my spouse, my dog, and two cats. I'm the first one up. Usually the orange cat follows me down and I run a tiny stream of tap water for her to play with while I make the coffee. And like I said, I'm a super coffee nerd. We grind the beans and filter the water and have a whole fancy thing. And the other thing I have for breakfast in addition to coffee is a little cup of Greek yogurt. And then I start writing. I sit down at my desk because it is October here and it it now gets dark quite early in the day and it's still dark when I wake up, I have one of those big old mood lights to battle the seasonal affective disorder. So I sit with my enormously bright light at my desk and I just write. And what I write doesn't matter as long as I'm writing. These days, what I'm writing is my sister and I have started a podcast called the Feminist Survival Project 2020, which is for feminists in America who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by how much has to get done in 2020 and are worried they're not doing enough. So it's stress management strategies, skills for coping with the sort of relentless, horrifying news. So I'm spending a lot of time writing that right now. Sometimes I write fiction. Sometimes I just write journaly stuff. But the writing really grounds me. And then I transition from writing into reading. Right now, I'm reading a very silly romance novel called The Barefoot Princess by Christina Dodd. And then eventually the dog comes down and wants to be walked. And so the next thing I do is I put on my shoes and I take the dog out for a walk. We walk a couple of miles. And that makes her super happy. And it helps me to feel connected. I don't know how people live without having a dog because what she does is just by being there and being a dog, she is showing me how to be alive and just present in the moment and in the world. So when I walk with her, it is this practice that I just spent a couple of hours already disappeared into my own head. And then I walk the dog and I'm grounded back into the moment in my body and the connection between two mammalian bodies walking down a bike path together. That is my morning. Beautiful. Now I've got three rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Prioritize sleep. Yes. So important. Seven to nine hours every day. Yes. I love sleep. It's the best. Yes. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Give more. Mm-hmm. Yes. Beautiful. There's research on that. I know I sound scary, but yeah. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And what's one thing we can do for more love in our life? There's a Rumi quote, our task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find within ourselves the barriers we have built against it. Full goosebumps. (laughs) The hairs on my arms are standing up. (laughs) This has been so amazing, Emily. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Is there anything else you want to share or any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked you about yet? Oh, man, I think ending on a roomy quote is pretty much the way to go, right? Yeah. I'm a massive believer in service, and I feel like the work that you do, your three TED Talks, which we'll link to in the show notes, everyone, please go and watch them. They are incredible. I you know, loved them so much. I got so much out of them. Your books, your work, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. You are doing so much to help people and to be of service and to shine light on a taboo topic. So I'm really grateful for that. And you are giving to so many people. So I want to know what I and the listeners can do to serve you. So how can we serve you today? My favorite thing is to hear from people that they read the book and it change their relationship with their own bodies. They can be more patient and kind with their own bodies as a result of reading the work. So if you do nothing else as a result of this, learn to like take one five minute window today to turn toward your body with kindness and compassion and thank it for just like being here and carrying you into the day. Mm, beautiful. We can definitely do that. Compassion. Yes, compassion. Which sounds so hackneyed. When I say it out loud, I'm like, oh, please, Emily. But no, really. (laughs) It's so important. It's so important. And as well as the confidence and the joy, which we spoke about before. So, Emily, thank you so much. This has been so insightful and so important. I am so grateful for the work that you're doing and for sharing so openly and honestly with us today and for everything that you do in the world. I'm super grateful. So thank you. Thank you so much. Wasn't that epic? I got so much out of it. And I think it's great that we talk about sex in a healthy way because if we're not talking about it, How are we going to learn? How are we going to grow? How are we going to evolve? So thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And if you got a lot out of today's episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can educate and we can inspire even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading them all. So please come and share them with me. And for everything that Emily and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 265. And you can listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you again so much for being here and for wanting to be the best and the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. Well done. You should be so proud of yourself because this is something that is quite taboo and you showed up anyway. So well done you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life, maybe your partner, maybe your bestie, 
or anyone else that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, you can share it on your social media, you can email it to them, you can text it to them. Just do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.